BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, December 6th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indra Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide, and we endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So, Chris, right at the start of the show, I want to thank the many new listeners that have tuned in to our podcast over the past two months. We've only been on the air for a few months, and we are absolutely stunned and thrilled that so many people have found us and listened and even, you know, given us some some lovely reviews. Yes. Um, let me just add to that. We've got scores of great iTunes reviews. Thank you. Uh, you folks have tweeted and Facebooked our shows just a lot. And going forward, I want to say we're going to work very hard to bring you the brand of insightful interviewing and commentary that uh, will not only reward the investment you're making in us, but we hope that you simply won't be able to find elsewhere. So welcome aboard. And thanks for listening. So for today's interview, I wanted to follow up with Marin McKenna. She's a journalist and an author whose beat is public health and food policy. But she's also known colloquially as the scary disease girl because she specializes in the coverage of infectious diseases. Um, she has two books on the subject. One is called Superbug, about the fatal menace of MRSA. And the other is called Beating Back the Devil. And it chronicles her time when she was embedded in the investigative unit of the Center for Disease Control. She just published a piece uh, with Medium in which she covers the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and she paints a pretty scary future in which we no longer have access to antibiotics. If you count back to the earliest identification of antibiotics in 1928, for 85 years, they have been solving the problem of infectious disease um, in a way that's really unique in human history, and people assume that those antibiotics are always going to be there. Unfortunately, they're wrong. Indre, my, my late grandfather uh, was a biologist and basically sort of the prime mover behind my whole like uber worldview. Uh, and I, I remember him always, always going off about antibiotic resistance and how people never worry about it. It's going to be this huge problem. This is 20 years ago or more. But I guess what McKenna is saying is that maybe the moment of reckoning is close to being here? 
Yeah, you know, it's amazing. We've known about the danger of antibiotic resistance ever since the inception of antibiotics, you know, the first discoveries. And yet, um, for a long time, drug companies kept finding new treatments and our hygiene practices continued to improve. And so our risk of infection continued to decline. But we're coming to an age now where, you know, there are fewer drugs being developed. Um, there are more and more strains of antibiotic resistant bacteria that are infecting us. And we're starting to run out of options. It's it's kind of scary. Um, and I, so I think it's really important to address it now before, you know, a common scrape becomes deadly. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. And, you know, Chris, you're always going on about how bad, you know, Americans are at math. And apparently it's not just adults, but kids, too. Right. So this is this is a big story this week. Not only are U.S. kids poor at math, but as I will explain, they are poor at difficult math, uh, and that's maybe even worse news. So here's here's the story. Every three years, we have this ritual. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, releases this test called the PISA test, P-I-S-A, uh, and it stands for Program for International Student Assessment. And basically, it's an international study of how 15-year-olds in a lot of countries around the world do on reading, science, and math. And so every three years, we learn that the United States students are at best mediocre at science and less than mediocre at math. So in the latest iteration, U.S. students were 21st among the OECD countries in science and 26th in math. Okay, so I'm a nerd, and I went into this piece of, there's huge volumes of data looking at it, uh, trying, to f- trying to figure out the story, right? And get this. It turns out that U.S. kids are actually better than most of the world at easy math problems. Um, problems that involve things like, oh, they give you a chart and, you have to, and they ask you a multiple choice question. What does the chart show? Is it A, B, C, or D? So U.S. kids, you know, most 15-year-olds get that right. U.S. 15-year-olds get it right even more than most. But if you then turn to a difficult question, so a question where you have to take a real world situation and you have to figure out the math behind it. So one of them is about a revolving door where there's three doors and they have to figure out what the angle is of each of the doors and that the doors make. Um, So then the students, U.S. students are really worse than average. So, you know, 58% of students in the world might get this one right, but only 47% of U.S. students. And the conclusion of PISA is that U.S. students, and this is a, this is just so dismaying, are good at less cognitively demanding math, the quick and the easy. And they're bad at this stuff where you have to actually apply what you've learned in new ways. So this is, this is kind of, kind of bad news. And I'll just end with one more annoying fact about U.S. students in math. So they don't do as well as students in other countries. Students in Shanghai are the best. Um, but U.S. students are also overconfident and overestimate their abilities. And to quote PISA, 69% of U.S. students thought they um, were confident in a math task, uh, that they could do a good job calculating something like the, the gas consumption of a car, but the OECD rate uh, was only 56% confident. Wow, you know, in some ways it almost fits the stereotype, unfortunately, that yeah, a lot of people who don't live in America have of, of people who live here, which is, you know, that we choose the easy route uh, and that we're overconfident. But it made me wonder if there isn't something about 
the easy problems being more concrete, you know, like here's a graph, pick the data point that, you know, is going to correspond to the right answer. And that what's really at issue here maybe is that U.S. students aren't trained to think in abstract ways. Yeah, I think there's an implication here that we're teaching them, you know, certain sets of skills and showing them the easily ap easy applications and drilling them and getting them good at that. But the whole, you know, creative think on your feet, apply it kind of thing. That's where, and there's also some other interesting facts. For some reason, U.S. students, they, Pisa points out, are really bad at using pi in calculations. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why that would be, but apparently we do not like pi. Well, they need to watch more of The Simpsons, as we talked about a couple weeks right, ago. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so study up, U.S. students, because there's another test in three years. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, you're going to have to forgive me, but I'm afraid I'm okay. going to have an Andy Rooney moment here. Okay. Um, and it's one of those weeks in neuroscience when a study has come out and it's hit it's gone viral with a lot of media, and it just makes me want to put my head on my desk. And here it is. Uh, apparently, a new study in, well, this is true, in, in, the, in PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a study has claimed that male and female brains ha show differences in terms of the connectivity within and between the hemispheres. Let me unpack that. That female brains seem to be more highly interconnected between the hemispheres, that is the brain cells between in different hemispheres are more connected to each other than male brains, whereas male brains show greater connectivity within a hemisphere. So the cells in the left hemisphere, for example, are more tightly connected to each other uh, in men than in women. And boy, has this gotten a lot of attention. Mm hmm. You know, there's uh, often when when there are these sex differences in neuroscience, they they come out um, and and they they garner a lot of a lot of attention from the media. But what's really you know you can't in some ways blame the media when the authors themselves have gone out and said things like, "Here's evidence that there are hardwired differences in the brain that correspond to behavior," and that's what you know the big problem that I have with this study is right up front they say, "Look, you know our results complement the literature showing that men are better at motor and spatial abilities and women are better at." things like remembering and social cognition. And, you know, I just want to scream out, it's absolutely not true. There just isn't enough evidence to support these kind of behavioral um, major divides between men and women. And certainly there are a lot of differences morphologically between male and female brains that could account for this kind of connectivity. So, you know, people have mentioned in some other blog posts that the, the fact that very tiny motion differences in the scanner can account for possibly for some of these effects. And, you know, it is it is possible that girls are more fidgety. Um, you know, in this particular study, they had a 947 subjects, which is a huge amount. And the differences are fairly small. And they started with kids that were eight years old and went all the way to 22. So you have a major age uh, difference, too. So, you know, it is possible that the girls in the study um, moved around a little bit more. OK, so even if that's not true, there certainly is a big age difference, which they kind of don't talk about, except to say that in the eight-year-old kids and the younger kids, they don't see this connectivity difference. So how can the uh, authors go on and say that it's hardwired if you don't see it in the youngest group? It suggests that actually it's a product of experience, a product of learning over time um, yeah. as the brains are developing. Well, we know that the brain changes uh, from everything that happens to you, right? <laughs> and clearly, boys and girls go on different tracks 
uh, absolutely and connectivity is the is the one thing that i would argue is is undeniably related to experience so how these cells are going to be connected with each other is certainly going to be dependent on the experience that the individual brain the person uh, is having throughout the lifespan so it certainly doesn't mean that it's nature that that that's just how we're hardwired which which, which is what that term implies um but you know also you have this you, know, you should learn from the past where we used to think that the corpus callosum, which is the major fiber tract that connects the two hemispheres, um, was shown to be bigger in women than in men for a long time. And then we realized, hey, you know what? It's just because of the volume difference in men and women that, you know, brain volume itself can account for these differences. Uh, and certainly that seems to be the case in terms of this kind of kind of brain cell uh, connectivity in that, you know, if you took away these the, the brain uh, size differences is. It's not just that it's not it's not obvious how brain size is going to affect connectivity, but it certainly does. So in other words, just so I understand this and I was reading this on average, men, men are larger and their brains are larger. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Men are tend to be on average taller than women. They tend yeah. to be bigger and their heads are mm-hmm. bigger and therefore their brains yeah. are bigger. Sure. And so there's certain morphological differences that are related to, you know, having these bigger brains. And it's not a one to one relationship where, OK, you just have, you know, more brain cells. It's it's sort of a, the difference can be very much in how the brain cells are connected with each other, you know, how the brain is actually shaped. Um, and what's most upsetting to me about this study is that they completely ignore the fact that there's a whole other way of looking at connectivity that is really, really popular right now in neuroscience. And that's looking at what we, what we call resting state activity. So actually looking at how the brain is active when a person is you know, at rest, just sitting in the scanner, not doing anything. And that's also a measure of how these different parts of the brain are communicating. In this new study, they were actually looking at actual morphological differences. So how, you know, the, the brain cells are connected physically. Um, but in resting state, we look at how the brain, different regions are connected functionally. And those studies have not, you know, shown differences between men and women. So even if there was this morphological difference, it's not translating into yeah. function. And therefore, we can't say that it's underlying some kind of behavioral difference. Okay, so where do I go to nominate you as a peer reviewer? <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> I think it's necessary. <laughs> you know, the study itself, I wouldn't have such a big problem with yeah. it if, you know, if it just hadn't been so overinterpreted in the media. So anyway, apologies for the rant. <laughs> One thing we know about brains, or at least about psychology, I don't know about brain, but I mean, they are, you know, obviously highly related, is that people stereotype. We simplify. We try to put people in boxes. And so we apparently also love to use brain studies to put people in boxes. And what better uh, to do that? with than the sexes. So that's part of what's happening here too. Yeah. So I'm going to try to scrape my head off my desk sometime in the next week. I'm sorry that this this study injured you so much, but you've certainly (laughs) taken out some of your frustrations. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, on that note, let's take a short break and we'll be back in a moment uh, with our interview for today with Marin McKenna. This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. If this is your first time listening, I should let you know that you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or anywhere else that takes an RSS feed, and you can interact with me and the hosts on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Whether it's feedback on how we're doing or a suggestion for someone to have on the show, we always love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Marin McKenna. Happy to be here. Thank you. 
It's great to have you on our show, especially during flu season, which I imagine for you is a very interesting time of year. You know, the difficult thing about being someone who writes about infectious diseases is that um, you, of course, never really want people to be ill. But at the same time, if the diseases don't happen, you don't really have anything to write about. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I look at, at things like flu season with kind of doubled vision. I both want it to happen and also really don't. So are there sort of good years and bad years in your industry, sort of the, you know, maybe the SARS epidemic was a particularly good year in the sense that it gave you a lot of things to write about. You know, of course, it was a bad year for people who suffered from it. Um, or does it is every year just as interesting as the last? Well, it's a funny thing. Um, it, it, there there are maybe times in the year when it seems as though no major disease outbreaks are happening, um, but something always comes along. Uh, SARS is a perfect example. I, I was actually, um, in the year that SARS happened, I had arranged to embed myself with the CDC's disease detective corps. Um, and I was planning to write a book about them. And for a couple of months, nothing really happened except a lot of outbreaks of vomiting disease on cruise ships. And my book editor was very depressed. And she kept saying, oh, really, is this entire book going to be about people throwing up on boats? And I said, no, something will happen. I, I can't say what it is, but I promise there will be an outbreak somewhere. And then SARS happened and provided the last chapter of the book, in addition to you know moving around the world and making 8,000 people sick. So my editor was very happy. <laughs> Things always happen. So I do want to get back to what it was like to be embedded in this investigative unit. But first, I want to just ask you, what first got you excited about writing and, and learning about bugs? You know, I, I stumbled into this identity as sort of scary disease girl really kind of sideways. I used to work in newspapers, and my job in newspapers was that I was an investigative reporter um, of the kind of in, doing the kind of investigation that mostly involves reading lots of documents that no one else has ever looked at. And it just happened that two of the investigations that I sort of stumbled into both turned out to be based on epidemiology. One involved a potential cancer cluster around a closed nuclear weapons plant that dated back to the Manhattan Project. And the other involved really strange illnesses in reservists in Massachusetts who had gone to the first Gulf War. And those strange symptoms turned out to be the first signals of what we now call Gulf War syndrome. And out of those two investigations, I sort of became a public health writer and got more and more interested in and drawn into the complexities of infectious disease, which really means the, the nexus between disease and culture and history and travel and food and so many other things that are central to our lives. It's a really rich topic. And uh, all these years later, I haven't gotten tired of it yet. And do you still see infectious diseases as the primary problem in public health? Well, you know, there are public health people who would disagree with me about that um, because the death burden and possibly even the public health cost of chronic diseases, which are mostly not infectious diseases, but things like cardiovascular disease and cancer, um, the, if you asked a pure public health person, they would probably say that's most important. But I think it's inarguable that infectious diseases are the thing that 
catches the eye of the mass audience much more than chronic diseases or birth defects or any other major public health problem. There's something sort of enduringly sexy and, and attractive about them in a ghoulish kind of way. And people always want to read about them, which is fortunate for me because I haven't gotten tired yet of writing about them. And historically, of course, it seems like some of the you know, major plagues and, and other events that caused a lot of deaths came from infectious diseases. Although, you know, the idea of a plague striking today seems pretty far-fetched to most of us in the Western world. Yeah, it's true. You know, we don't think of plagues anymore as being something that could reshape history. But in the past, plagues, you know, defining that broadly certainly did from, you know, the plague of Justinian in the 500s through the Black Death from the 1300s to the 1600s, which completely reshaped the population of Europe, to even the 1918 flu, which killed, depending on which count you accept, anywhere from 50 to 100 million people around the world and really girdled the globe in 11 months at a point when the fastest transportation was steamships and railroads. So, you know, people still look back to the 1918 flu as an example of what in the modern era a plague can do. It, 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 it you know, killed so many millions. It penetrated almost every country on earth. Um, it it changed so much about society and, and art and culture and how we think of history, possibly even the, you know, the end of World War One and the beginning of World War Two would have been different if that flu hadn't come along. So plagues still really have power. And, and almost 100 years later, we shouldn't think that we are immune to them because we're not. So, but why do we think we're immune to them? I mean, you'd think that it would be much more common to have these epidemics of infectious diseases, given how much we travel across the globe these days. And yet it doesn't seem to be, you know, a primary news item every single month. It is interesting. I think that most people, well, probably most people don't think about this all this deeply. Um, It's left to people like me to do that. But I think also my sense is that the, the audience believes that that most of the problems that give rise to plagues have been solved um, because we have good hygiene, because we have good housing, because we have all the things that cities do for us, like bringing us clean water and taking away waste. And, and because we have antibiotics, which really, you know, if you, if you count back to the earliest identification of antibiotics in 1928, for 85 years, they have been solving the problem of infectious disease um, in a way that's really unique in human history. And people assume that those antibiotics are always going to be there. And unfortunately, they're wrong. So I do want to get to, you know, this this idea that we're running out of antibiotics. But first, I just want to get a sense of the types of infectious diseases that we know about and that are treatable with antibiotics versus not. So could you just give us a brief primer of the types of infectious diseases that we should really be thinking about as, as problematic? So antibiotics treat things that are caused by bacteria. So staph, strep, stuff like that. They don't treat things that are caused by viruses, like, for instance, influenza. Now, for some viral diseases, we have antiviral drugs. HIV AIDS is a great example. But there are diseases out there, including diseases that are of real public health importance, like polio and influenza, that antibiotics don't touch and um, for which the the sort of parallel drugs, the antiviral drugs, maybe as good or may not, but don't have as wide a reach as antibiotics do. 
So, but we also have vaccines and vaccines can treat both or can prevent uh, both bacterial infections and viruses, right? That's right. But we don't have vaccines for all diseases. And that's for a variety of reasons, sometimes because of something inherent to the disease organism that makes it difficult to develop a vaccine for it. Staph is a great example. Um, Drug-resistant staph, methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, most people call that MRSA or MRSA, is a really important public health problem. It kills more than 18,000 people just in the United States uh, in, or did in the worst year that we know of, which was just a few years ago, and puts hundreds of thousands of people in the hospital every year. But there's something about staph that makes developing durable immunity against it really challenging. You can naturally get reinfected with staph and, and therefore it's very hard to establish immunity with the vaccine since you don't get it from the natural infection. There are other barriers to getting vaccines as well. Sometimes it's just that pharmaceutical companies aren't particularly interested in making them if they are not going to be um, bought by enough people or by enough governments, if there isn't enough return on investment. So we shouldn't assume that, though, though public health would always say prevention is better than treatment, we don't always have the prevention option open to us. And sometimes treatment with antibacterials, antibiotics, or antivirals are, is really as good as we get. So why is it that, you know, we have, we have what seems to be a growing problem of antibiotic resistance? I mean, from what I've read, Already from the first antibiotics that were discovered and then used in the Second World War, you know, penicillin and its friends, um, antibiotic resistance seemed to develop pretty quickly. Within a couple of years, there were some infections that were resistant. And yet, you know, penicillin is still used today. So what is the sort of timeline of resistance and, and why should we worry about it today more than, say, 10 years ago? So the answer is complicated because there's a couple of different sort of influences moving around within it. Um, so the antibiotic era starts if you're counting from the sort of the earliest possible date in 1928, when Alexander Fleming looks down at a dish in his laboratory in London and realizes that something has blown in the window and is killing the staff that he was growing on that dish. And what turned out to be growing on the dish and killing the staff was the mold penicillium from which we got the first natural antibiotic, natural penicillin. From 1928, then we get the sulfa drugs in the mid-1930s. Penicillin isn't actually developed and released to the market until the early 1940s. And for most of the time since then, we had steady, regular introductions of new antibiotics. So resistance existed before we had antibiotics themselves, because antibiotics are based on natural compounds that bacteria make to defend themselves against each other, to protect themselves against bacteria moving in on them, to clear out living space and for themselves and their descendants, to, um, to ensure access to sources of nutrition and they make these compounds to kill other bacteria, and in response, those bacteria develop chemical defenses against those compounds. That's what resistance is based on. It was naive of us to think, if we ever did in fact think, that once we took those compounds into the lab and made synthetic versions of them, that resistance would would not continue to happen. Um, and in fact, Alexander Fleming, when he got the Nobel Prize in medicine for being one of the inventors of penicillin, in 1945, he warned that 
resistance was going to happen, that if we did not treat antibiotics with incredible care, we would stimulate that natural process of resistance and bacteria would, would become immune to the drugs. And he was exactly right. That did happen. That was happening actually as he spoke. By 1947, an epidemic of penicillin-resistant staph was moving across the world in, in response to which in 1960, the first synthetic penicillins, starting with methicillin, um, were invented and different drug families rolled out from that. So, so first, resistance is a natural process. And, and second, we made resistance work worse by the sort of cavalier way that we used antibiotics and still use them. You know, 40% of the the prescriptions that are written in the United States each year are believed to be written for problems for which antibiotics were relevant, such as viral illnesses like bronchitis, for instance. But the third thing is, is that there's a kind of curve to antibiotic development. Um, At first, in the 1940s and 50s, there was a big boom in new drugs. Um, Eli Lilly, the company Eli Lilly is famous for sending test tubes, essentially, all around the world or Petri dishes and asking people, people who were going on church missions or people who were in the military or people who were making sort of um, diplomatic travel to send back little test tubes full of dirt, because in that dirt, they believed there would be soil bacteria that would yield new antibacterial compounds. That's where some of the most powerful drugs we still have today came from, was from that, that research effort that Lilly started in the 1950s. But somewhere around the 1980s, all the easy antibiotics got achieved, and that left us with uh, sort of having to work much harder to come up with truly new compounds that bacteria had never seen before and didn't already have resistance primed for. So while we've been misusing antibiotics and sort of kind of taking them for granted, the 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 pipeline of antibiotics or the the faucet from which they come has been slowly turned down and down and down so that now it's just a drip. And as resistance gets worse, we have fewer and fewer defenses against it because we have fewer drugs. One of the things I love about studying bacterial infections is that it's sort of, it's like watching evolution in action. You know, it's, it's a, it's a real time within a couple of generations, you can actually see evolution happening. Um, and so it makes me wonder if we're in this arms race with these bacteria, why can't we just design antibiotics that would be effective and use our brains to actually engineer something that, you know, we're we're presumably smarter than bacteria, I hope. (laughs) Um, And yet they seem to, you know, kick our butts all the time. Well, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, there are places in the broad pharmaceutical industry where that kind of sort of rational design of drugs is happening now. The problem with that is that R&D, any kind of pharma R&D, but especially sort of rational drug design, is a really expensive undertaking. And antibiotics are not something that make back a lot of money. If you think about it, and antibiotics, and, and to some degree antivirals, are kind of unique in the pharmacopoeia in that they actually cure the thing that they are given for. Unlike, say, most cancer drugs, most cardiovascular drugs, drugs for diabetes, drugs for other chronic and lifestyle diseases, most of those ameliorate, but they do not flat cure. They don't make the problem go away. And as a result, those drugs get taken for months, years, 
or a lifetime, whereas antibiotics will be taken for just a couple of weeks or just a couple of months if you're in really, really bad shape. That means the sales aren't very big. In addition, once you put an antibiotic compound out there, bacteria start responding and resistance begins to develop. And at a certain point, your your drug, even if it's a brand new drug, becomes less useful because physicians start to think, hmm, in my area, possibly 20% of this bacteria is now showing resistance to this antibiotic. What if my patient is is in that 20%. What if I prescribe this and this drug doesn't work? Maybe I shouldn't prescribe this drug at all anymore. And the third thing is if you come up with a truly new, truly great antibiotic, the the response of medicine these days is often to want to put it on the shelf, to not use it immediately, to reserve it for the really west, rest, worst cases. In that situation, once again, you're not making, making back your R&D. And so no matter how tempting it might be as a kind of lab experiment, as a, as a sort of um, as a, a modeling experiment to come up with truly new antibiotics, a, a sensible company that has to respond to its shareholders is going to take a look at the profit and loss on that and wonder whether it's really in their best interest to do it. But couldn't they just then charge a lot of money for the one, do- you know, the one dose that's going to cure you of this of this disease? It seems to me that you know, if, if, if antibiotic resistance is going to become more and more of a problem, you know, your market is going to be huge, too. There's going to be billions of people that are going to need this, this drug. You know, that, I think, is a really interesting question. Um, and it's a question that probably as a, as a reporter writing about this that I should be asking. Um, on the other hand, if you think of what the public reaction is to the costs of some new cancer drugs, for instance, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for weeks or a month of a drug. You have to wonder whether there's going to be enough sale or or if there's going to be a public backlash that is going to make the company, again, wish they hadn't done this. And I think that's – it's an open question, but it's a question that we're probably heading toward is at what point are the companies going to think, yes, it's really worth going out with something truly new and charging an incredible amount of money because because the market needs it Um, and are consumers and healthcare going to be willing to pay the price? Well, especially when a lot of cancer drugs simply prolong life for a number of months rather than actually cure the disease. You know, it seems that, it seems to me like given the choice, I would pay the $100,000 for the one antibiotic um, that will cure me. But let's talk a little bit about why antibiotics were sort of misused. What did we do wrong that created this situation in which we have a lot of resistance? So back in 1945, Fleming said... Um, we're just not going to take these seriously. And he actually said this, said this a couple of times. He said it in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. But not long after he got the Nobel Prize, he also gave a long interview to the New York Times. And he said the same thing in, in very direct and so sort of pained language that, that we are going to lose the antibiotic miracle. Um, and we lost it in a couple of ways. The first was that we just didn't understand how precious the drugs were. And at first, when antibiotics came out, there was huge sort of public market enthusiasm for them. And they were they were used very freely and, and kind of indiscriminately, which kind of got resistance going. The second thing is that from then, so over, you know, 60, 70 years, and even today, people don't use take their prescriptions properly. They underdose themselves. They get misdosed because they go to a physician and they insist on antibiotics when they don't really need them. Or the physician 
write a script for antibiotics because the patient is pressuring them and they don't really know how else to end the encounter and they haven't got time to explain that they should be doing watchful waiting. The biggest, by weight, certainly, misuse of antibiotics that exists in our culture is the way that we use antibiotics in agriculture. We certainly misuse them in human medicine, but 80% by volume um, of the drugs that are sold every year in the United States go not to humans, but to farm animals and go to them to farm animals primarily for use in helping them to put on weight and protecting them from the crowded conditions in which they are raised. In other words, they're not used to treat sick animals. They're used to keep animals from getting sick and they're used to make animals get fat faster and move through the system more quickly. So that's a really interesting observation that, you know, antibiotics somehow make animals fatter because there's also been a recent finding that, in fact, there might be a link between the use of antibiotics in humans and obesity. Um, Are these coming from the same mechanism or is it something completely different? Why do antibiotics make animals fat and do they also make us fat? You know, it's a really interesting question. And I think there are people just now embarking research on that. Um, The observation that if you give livestock micro doses of antibiotics, they get fat faster, dates back to the late 1940s. And people knew that it worked long before they had any inkling of why it might be working. And to a certain degree, they didn't really care why it might be working. They just saw the effect and thought this was a good thing for highly concentrated agriculture to make use of. So long before anyone started really thinking about what is the microbiome and how do we, how is the way we behave impacted and what kind of effect does that have on our health, on our weight, on our immune systems and so forth, people were probably tinkering with animals' microbiomes by giving them um, microdose antibiotics. It's only really in the past 15 years or so that people have started to understand the functioning of the gut flora and how that uh, interacts with the rest of the body. And now there's this hypothesis that what's actually going on in growth promoter antibiotic use is sort of tinkering with animals' microbiomes. But um, I don't think that that's been proven. And there's no really particular reason for very large-scale agriculture to want it proven or not. They have this process. They believe that it works. Um, they are not required to care for the – to pay for the externalities of it working. Um, and, um, and so they just keep going. So you've also reported on the fact that in the American South in particular, there seems to be a much more um, liberal use of antibiotics or prescription of antibiotics by doctors. And that also happens to be part of the country that suffers most from obesity. Do you think that that's just a coincidence or is that something that, you know, one is causing the other? So it's really tempting to think that one is causing the other. And I actually did think that at first um, because the the overlay uh, on if you map it is really striking between obesity, um, antibiotic use and um, some other important things like the incidence of diabetes, the incidence of stroke and other cardiovascular illness. But I, I put together a series of maps and I put them up on my blog at Wired and just kind of invited my audience to talk back at me about what they saw going on in these maps. And they actually kind of persuaded me that what I first thought, which was a direct cause and effect relationship, is probably not accurate. Probably what's going on is that both 
well, obesity, cardiovascular disease, uh, stroke, heart disease, um, diabetes, they're all sort of signals of poor health generally. Access to antibiotics, weirdly, is probably a signal for lack of access to health care, which is one of the things that produces poor health. That, that seems counterintuitive because if you got antibiotics, then certainly you, you had an encounter with the healthcare system at some point. But getting a script for antibiotics is one of the sort of quickest, lowest value kind of encounters you can have in healthcare. It takes much less time um, than, um, you know, having a full doctor's workup or being able to afford an emergency room visit. There are some, um, you know, some places where you can actually get antibiotics for free at certain parts of the year. So... Well, it's tempting to think that mass consumption of antibiotics is dis- is distorting the human microbiome on a on a mass scale, um, and that may in fact be true. I don't think it's on. If that's true, it's not only happening in the southeast, and some other things are going on to make those two things show up. So, if we're coming into an era now in which we have fewer and fewer antibiotics that are going to be useful to treat the diseases that we're we're encountering, um, what do you see as not only the future or, you know, the sort of post-antibiotic future and and what it looks like, but also what we should be doing to combat it. You know, the post-antibiotics future in, in, from where I sit looks really scary. Uh, It looks like the pre-antibiotic era, only worse. Um, You know, before we achieved antibiotics, plenty of infections that we now don't even blink at killed people. Um, You could get a scrape or a cut and it would get infected. And one out of nine people back in the pre-antibiotic era who got a skin infection either lost a limb to amputation or died. Um, When people got pneumonia, three out of 10 people who got pneumonia died. Um, The rates of death in childbirth from infection or anywhere from five per thousand to in the worst places, something like one in five. So we just assume that we can, you know, scratch ourselves up, play extreme sports, let our kids slide into home base, play around with power tools, um, climb trees, because we have antibiotics to protect us against infection. But also, there are many, many more things that we do now in medicine that we didn't do in the 19th century before we had antibiotics um, that would not be possible without them, like any kind of major open cavity surgery, like dialysis, like intensive care medicine, like cancer chemotherapy, like organ transplants, like joint transplants, all of those things, if you don't have antibiotics to protect against infection, become, if not completely untenable, then much, much more risky than they ever have been before. And so if we didn't have antibiotics or if we had only a few left and we were guarding them very jealously, the entire structure of medicine, of critical care medicine, even probably of end of life care would really change. And I think also kind of the way we lived our everyday lives. You know, it's it's kind of interesting to me sometimes to think about the the rates of infection that come out of these surgeries. I had this one opportunity um, to investigate a healer in uh, in South America named John of God, who was you know performing apparently what looked like um, incisions on people to heal them without any 
you know, antibiotics or, and, and yet the, his, the rate of infection was very low, which some people took as a sign that, you know, he's, he's miraculous and he's, he's working with the hand of God. But when I actually did the research to see what are the rates that we should expect of infection, they were pretty low. Um, but of course, in a hospital, even one, you know, hospital related infection is too many, we expect there to be none. So it made me wonder whether just these sort of hygiene practices that, that um, surgeons now go through would still keep the rates pretty low? Or is that just a pipe dream? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't think they would protect us against infection completely. But if you go back into 19th century medical history, the, you know, there are two important figures who really changed the way that medicine thought about keeping things clean. Um, the one is Ignaz Semmelweis, who was working at the Lying in Hospital in Vienna and noticed that women were dying of childbed fever at incredibly high rates and figured out that it was because the medical students were going from autopsies of cadavers to labor and delivery without bothering to wash their hands. He embarked on this fanatic campaign uh, in favor of hand washing, um, and he really changed medicine as a result. He also was hounded out of his job and died in an insane, insane asylum. Medicine was not necessarily ready to hear him. The other really important figure is Florence Nightingale, whom we think of as the, um, the founder of nursing. But before she really stood up for nursing as an organized profession. She was herself a battlefield nurse running a, a field hospital in the, the Crimean campaign. And she published, she was also a sort of instinctive statistician, and she published some beautiful graphics, some data visualizations of what happened in different field hospital sites when they paid aggressive attention to scrubbing down the entire environment um, and the rates of infection really went and especially death from infection really went down. So on the one hand, <laughs> you have Semmelweis uh, campaigning for hand washing and on the other, Florence Nightingale campaigning for the cleanliness of the total healthcare environment. And that battle is still really kind of being fought today in infection control where some people really push hand washing or gloving and other people say no antibiotic resistance has gotten so bad in so many kinds of organisms, not just ones that stick on your hands, that we have to return to really scrubbing down the complete hospital environment, which is really that is something that had kind of fallen by the wayside and, and is being treated now like a new thing again. So do you think that if we're going into this post-antibiotic future, we're going to have to have more government regulation of even the use of the antibiotics that we have now? I mean, it, you know, it's pretty controversial, as you mentioned earlier, that some doctors would simply withhold antibiotics to keep them as a last resort. You know, if someone is sick, shouldn't they have the drugs that they need to get better? Or, or what, what are your thoughts on, on how the government should get involved? Well, you know, it's a really interesting and difficult question because the places that have done the most to rein in antibiotic use, which is a, a process that medicine calls antibiotic stewardship, um, and which that, as a result have seen actual declines in the rates of antibiotic-resistant infections, happen to be countries that have single-payer healthcare systems. They are mostly in Europe. There are places like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands, um, where there's positive government control over what can be used and when it can be used, both in human medicine and also in agriculture as well. Now, we don't have that kind of system. We don't have single-payer healthcare, um, which 
as a result of which we we miss out on a number of things that Europe can make use of. You know, they have have very explicit carrots and sticks, which work when you own the hospitals and employ the doctors. We have a sort of patchwork of retail medicine where that kind of control wouldn't work. Um, is there a possibility instead for a sort of for the FDA to create more control over licensure of antibiotics? Um, you know, I think that's an open question as well. To the degree that people are talking about government involvement in antibiotic resistance at this point, what they're talking about is not so much reining in antibiotic use, but rather stimulating development of new antibiotics. And there's a really active discourse around what's the best way to get pharmaceutical companies back into manufacturing antibiotics again. Do we do we give them patent extensions? Do we reduce their taxes? Do we give them goodies on existing drugs in addition for them to come uh, to make them come up with new drugs? Um, no one has really um, uh, formulated exactly the right path, but a lot of people are talking about it because the, the underlying assumption seems to be we may not be able to manage control. So um, we have to, we can't manage the demand side. So we have to manage the supply side instead. So I want to end on a somewhat more hopeful note, um, but also talk about another part of this conversation where the government does have some involvement, and that is in vaccines, both in their development and in their administration. Um, so there's a lot of controversy, especially in California, on the use of vaccines recently, um, particularly now that we have a whooping cough epidemic. And so you've, you've written about whooping cough and the vaccinations and how the vaccines have become actually less effective over time. So can you give us an overview of, of the of what's going on? The whooping cough story is really tangled and really sad. Um, and it's kind of an object lesson in the way that um, emotion, I guess, um, overtakes science. So it's absolutely correct that we have at this point a, a rampant whooping cough epidemic, pertussis epidemic across the United States. It's also correct that people who do not vaccinate their children um, are playing a role in furthering that epidemic. But, and, and those people, for the most part, don't vaccinate their children because for one reason or another, they do not believe in or they don't trust vaccines. They think vaccines are harmful. They think vaccines are there, are an infringement on their rights as parents. Um, they think vaccines don't work. Um, people come at vaccine refusal or vaccine denial or vaccine um, uncertainty from from a variety of paths. But another part of this, as you referred to, is that our whooping cough vaccine that we use right now is not as good as it used to be. We used to have what was called a whole cell vaccine against pertussis, which is just what it sounds like, um, to, to create durable immunity against pertussis. They would actually kill the entire organism and use the whole organism in the vaccine formula. People complained that that whole cell formula had an outside, outsize risk of reactions, that that was causing bad vaccine reactions in children. In fact, the, the modern, as in like the past 20 or so, 25 years, anti-vaccine movement in the United States partly dates from the fight against the whole cell pertussis vaccine. So in response, um, the U.S. government and governments in Western Europe really pushed pharmaceutical companies to come up with an alternative. There were big trials, not so much in the U.S., but in other countries, primarily in England, I think. And as a result, 
what came out of that was what's what we have now, which is called the acellular pertussis vaccine. It uses some proteins from the that organism, but it doesn't use the whole organism anymore. It is much it causes a much lower rate of reaction. It also, as it turns out, causes much less immunity. The immunity from that fades much faster than the immunity from the old whole cell pertussis faded. And this got found out just in the past couple of years, 10 years at the outside, when people in big states like California that had very large, robust healthcare systems with good records could look at their rates of pertussis and say, wait, this is happening in children much younger than it should be happening in. You know, it's, we're seeing it happening in eight, nine, 10 year olds, but it really shouldn't because they, they should be pr- protected still by their last vaccine. Um, so it turns out that that less reactogenic vaccine is also a less effective vaccine. The, the answer, the question then is, what do you do? Um, the first thing you do is you make sure everyone's vaccinated to the degree that you can, because at least that the, the short acting immunity is distributed as widely as possible. The second is maybe you give boosters and maybe you give them to, to certain segments of the population that are most at risk, elderly people, pregnant women, you know, as uh, families of infants, since infants younger than six months can't be vaccinated themselves. And it's a really active discussion in the public health community right now, who is supposed to get those, those new boosters, those extra, extra boosters. And the third question is, can you have a new vaccine? Well, um, there there are some companies that are starting to look at whether they could make a new pertussis vaccine better than the one that, that we now have. But overall, we are a society now um, in, in which there's a lot of vaccine distrust. And that is a very difficult market into which to ask someone to bring um, a brand new vaccine that's going to be very expensive for them to develop and and for which they're going to want to make a lot of money back if they don't see a good return on their investment, either because a lot of people want it or because the government's willing to mandate it in the childhood vaccination schedule, then the chances of a company coming up with a new vaccine are just not that great. And yet we, you know, we live in a time in which it's really a societal problem because the more people that get vaccinated, you know, the more likely we have a herd immunity. And so, you know, the less likely it is that any given person, even vaccinated or not, will suffer from the disease. So this is really a problem that we all need to agree on. That's right. And that's one of the central problems of vaccination as a public health thing is that um, when you get vaccinated or when you have your child vaccinated, you are protecting yourself and your child, but you're also contributing to the protection of the herd. But for most of us, the herd doesn't really matter very much. I mean, most of us are relatively altruistic, relatively well-intentioned people. We certainly don't want our neighbors or friends to get sick, but they're getting sick and our lack of action are not strongly correlated in our minds. And it's very hard to convince people to to do something that seems largely to benefit others rather than themselves. Well, as these diseases get more and more resistant and stronger, we might have to work together a little bit harder. (laughs) I agree with you. Well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Marin McCann. It was great to talk to you. I was happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. I left this episode thinking, you know, what is it going to take to, you know, shake the world and say, hey, wake up, do something. We've got to do something um, to take this threat of antibiotic resistance head on before it's too late. I mean, if there was something like 
to take an a, a compl- analogy from a completely different scientific area, something like a Apollo program to fight back against the bugs, you know, I think we'd probably make a heck of a lot of progress. I mean, does it does it seem to you, Indre, like people are waking up at all? You know, Marin suggested a lot of changes that we could make to the way that we approve drugs and how we can do, you know, give incentives to drug companies to develop better drugs. I mean, I, I think, you know, the tools are out there. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be financially motivating enough for these drug companies to find ways of defeating these bugs. And I agree with you. It, it seems like a fairly solvable problem. Um, but I think it's going to take the, the you know, for us to really feel that we need to change our lifestyle before we sort of make some real progress. And that is, you know, when you start not allowing your kids to run in the streets, because, you know, if they got a scrape, they could die. I mean, at that point, I think some big changes are going to have to happen. Yeah, guys, it reminds me so much of, uh, you know, like asteroid defense, nobody cares. And yet it's if if the threat comes, and you're not ready for it, then the consequences are so enormous that gee, Maybe we should probably do a little bit of precautionary investment, uh, and and this is another one like that. So I just hope that, um, well, at least we're doing our part by trying to raise consciousness. Yep. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org, and you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, which is a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.